0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode, we're speaking with Matthias Westman and Akshay Bhutani of the Prosperity Russia Fund. Given that some of the information in here is quite timely, specifically around the built up tensions between Russia and the Ukraine, we felt it was prudent to expedite the release of this podcast and we're going to release it outside of our normal fortnightly cycle so that it can get to people in an expedited manner. Those of you who have been listening to the podcast for quite a while now will remember that I first spoke with Matthias based in their London office, given they have a London and Moscow office. I spoke to him in London in July 2019 as a reminder, the fund that Matthias manages invests in Russian and the ex-USSR state equities, and the theme really is around investing in great quality companies that aren't discovered or unloved by countries around the world. you hear Matthias talk in this episode about the fact that they're able to buy companies on a three times earnings multiple that are often yielding around 20%, which is just outstanding when you think about what you pay in the Australian market for similar types of companies. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed, nor is it specific advice. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and make their own inquiries and receive advice and read all the appropriate documents such as PDSs and information memorandums. Please remember to email me your feedback and suggestions. It's really valued. You can get me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Matthias and actually, welcome back to Inside the Rope. It's a pleasure to have you on. I think it was July, 2019, uh, where I last met with you and recorded an introduction to listeners to the podcast. It's it's fantastic to have you back on. Thank you, very nice. I think it'd be helpful, particularly for those people who maybe haven't heard earlier uh, versions of the podcast. Um, Maybe if you just give an introduction to Prosperity yourselves and the strategy, and then we can talk a little bit more about current issues and looking forward.
1: Well, Prosperity Capital Management was launched by myself and a colleague uh, already more than 25 years ago. So we've been investing in Russia since uh, actually since 93. So we've been involved since the the voucher privatization auction happened and and, uh, been through the wars for sure. Uh, We invest in Russia and the former Soviet Union We um, are a value oriented fund that tries to capture the development and and the progress that the Russian companies are making. I mean, they were originally privatized as Soviet production units and little by little new management teams, new owners have taken over and introduced modern management techniques, modern technology, modernized and increased productivity and added a lot of value. And we've seen, and we are still seeing a lot of progress happening in, in within the Russian companies and the Russian economy, and that's really what's creating the value that we're trying to capture.
0: And since we spoke in twenty nineteen, um, how has the fund performed?
1: Well, I mean, I, I actually hardly remember exactly which date it is. It's, of course, it's been a volatile time with. Covid uh, coming in and, and uh, hopefully now ebbing out. so so uh, you know I think we are recently up on that on that date, but uh, of course we were buffeted like many other th- uh, investment opportunities by by these events that we've seen. However, I would say that that Russia and our funds have come out stronger on the other side. Uh, Certainly the profits and the cash flows have improved tremendously since then. Uh, Unfortunately, we've seen something of a a multiple contraction over this period. And they've created, uh, I would say, unprecedented low valuations where the PEs are are less than three. And uh, many companies have dividend yields now over 20%. So it's a very uh, interesting situation, particularly if you uh, compare it with uh, other investment opportunities around
0: the world so matthias we probably need to stop there and pause because i remember one of the major theses when we first spoke years ago of, for investors in this area is to look at russia which is obviously overlooked by many other investors around the world for a number of reasons and that was because the valuations that you could buy high quality businesses i remember you talking to me about what you believed was a world-class vertically integrated poultry producer um, Mm -hmm. and you could buy that at three times earnings or three times ebit i believe Um, and when we look at valuations around the rest of the world if you would compare it to us technology companies for instance you, you can't compare you're talking about you know 10 times revenue versus three times um earnings why is it and what has led to such valuations that you're talking about of 20 percent yields and sort of three times earnings being available
1: well i mean it's a little bit hard to to know exactly the reasons why i don't believe it is the right valuation for these companies who are after all proven themselves over years to to be very well capable of producing cash flows but of course i think that a lot of it has to do with with two elements one is that it's not tech which people you know pe- people prefer to invest in tech for various reasons and there are, some of those are reasons are good but there are a limit on valuation in my view. And then the other one of course is geopolitics that a lot of investors in- institutional investors are uninterested or un- unwilling to be uh, uh, seen holding Russian assets and it's not big enough in, in big global indices for the, for this to be something that they need to do. Uh, we have seen an exodus of a lot of international investors, and those and the companies are more and more owned by Russian investors at this point. Uh, I think a lot of those uh, geopolitical concerns that people have, and I can see why they have it reading the, uh, you know, particularly the Anglo Saxon uh, media, uh, but I think they are overstated and, and I think often. You know people are mistaken about how they they analyze uh the russian political situation
0: so matthias i guess that begs the question here, here we are in australia reading and seeing news reports um talking about uh the the massing of russian troops on the ukrainian border and they they're throwing in the news uh updates every half hour to australians that that are in ukraine to say what it what it feels like there do you feel like they are about to be invaded, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I guess, can you, and I remember when we first met and we spoke, you talked about yourself being um, someone who was entrained to interrogate um, uh, Russian uh, military people in the past, and now you interrogate uh, business owners of of, of Russian executives. What what is your take on the current uh, geopolitical situation um, with regard to the Ukraine, yeah, you're right. That, that uh,
1: you know, my original uh, education, Russian education, was in the British military, and where we were taught to extract information from Russians, and we still attempt to do this. So, uh, and you know, these crises they started in, in uh, you could say, in, in 2014 with the with the events around Crimea and so on. And I always believed in in trying to find out. For yourself what's going on and i went down to crimea just a week before the referendum there and i went to the barricades of donetsk and so on to to hear from for myself what's going on so i try to keep myself informed i think that's always an important factor to to get the information from the first hand sources rather than than uh, you know third hand horses for horses sources that people would normally get in in um, in newspapers so I you know, I, I think I know the situation quite well. I've spoken to a lot of uh, you know influential people, businessmen and so on, both in Russia and, and in Ukraine. And I would say that none of these people actually believe that there will be a war or there would be an invasion. Not even the people in of Ukraine believe that. Um, and so this uh, yeah, kind of panic or whatever you want to call it, has been largely drummed up in in anglo-saxon press i would say and, and, and amongst politicians i would also say that it's fairly logical to believe that it would be in russia's interest to invade ukraine the the whole hypothesis from from putin is that the russians and the ukrainians are broadly people and hardly more or less one people and if if he were to launch a major Assault on Ukraine, that hypothesis would fail. So and Putin, he may be, you know, a bit of a strong man, people call him an authoritarian, but in reality, he's a populist. And you know, he if if he were to invade Ukraine, he would lose a lot of credibility and a lot of popularity in Russia. And that's certainly not something that he would like to do. So we don't believe that any real risk of this war happening. The only scenario where it would happen would be if ukraine tried to retake the separate separatist territories of the by force in which case uh, russia and putin would almost certainly uh, respond i don't believe that Zelensky, the current president of of ukraine is that stupid we already had the example of sakashvili in georgia who tried to retake uh, those territories, which were uh, held by by separatists, you could call them, in, in Georgia in 2008, uh, failing quite miserably and losing his political position. So I think that uh, Zelensky, who also were, was elected by um, on, on a platform of finding a peaceful resolution, is very unlikely to want to launch an assault on Donetsk. So, I I think that the probability and risk of this is very low. And I also believe that Russia would prefer Donetsk and all of this to be part of Ukraine so that uh, this this constituency within Ukraine would still be there that sympathizes with Russia. If you would, uh, he has had now uh, something like eight years, seven, eight years to try to incorporate Donetsk into Russia if he wanted to, and he hasn't wanted to. What they do want to do is have the Minsk agreements, and this gets a bit technical here, uh, implemented, which is essentially some form of federalization of Ukraine. And this federalization in itself would make it very difficult for Ukraine to ever enter NATO. And this is really the most important point here. Russia wants to avoid the situation where Ukraine enters NATO, and this is what the the proposal they've been making, that they will formally be stopped from entering NATO. Uh, I think he fully realizes that that uh, is a very difficult proposal to get approved, and uh, he doesn't expect the US and other NATO members to say so publicly, but the fact is that I'm not sure about the US, but most European countries, Germany, France and Italy and so on, do not want Ukraine to enter NATO. And they can't really say so, but implementing the the Minsk agreements make that effectively so that they can't enter. So this is the gambit really to to have these Minsk agreements implemented. There's a lot of political uh, difficulties with implementing those agreements in Ukraine, because the Ukrainians realize what the kind of subtext would be, so they don't want to do it. Uh, But Putin is hoping that this show of force would incentivize other European countries to put pressure on the Ukraine to implement the Minsk coordinates. That's what I think this gambit is about. Having said that, this uh, so-called massing of forces When they talk about 100,000 or 120,000 soldiers, they're actually measuring something which is the whole Southwest part of of, uh, Russia. Uh, I don't know exactly how many soldiers that normally holds, but uh, the Russian army has almost a million men. So I would think that at least two thirds of those ones, maybe three quarters are always there. And so the incremental increase in uh, in, uh, forces, that we're talking about is not that big and similar new exit similar exercises have happened once or twice a year every year uh, and and you know there's been alarmist reports of impending invasions
0: uh, that have never happened and they're not going to happen this this year either and matthias that draws me to Your comment earlier that you're able to buy companies on on yields up to 20% and at two to three times earnings, what type of companies are they and what sort of prospects do those companies uh, have for the future? You know, I I think the natural investor would think that they mustn't be very good companies if you can buy them on those sort of valuations.
1: Well, I mean, of course, there's a whole array of different types of companies. There are the, the, the most prominent ones, of course, are the energy producers. You know, oil and gas and such Mm -hmm. but there are of course many other ones in in terms of uh, utilities in terms of retailers in terms of uh, metals and mining companies Uh, there are some tech companies also they're not quite as cheap but they're they're cheaper a lot cheaper than elsewhere so and 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 what is interesting with them uh, is that they're all in the process of improving themselves they're all implementing modern technology. They're all improving their ESG scores. They're all cleaning up in various ways, and many of these companies are actually world class already. Uh, I would say, on average, if you if you're looking from, from like from an ESG point of view, for instance, their their um, record, their scores in terms of, of uh, emissions and such are better than world average for sure, and often better than the than the, than some of the best companies in the West. So we, we feel that these companies are misunderstood and underappreciated and the work that's been done by very active managers, very modern uh, new owners and so on is not you know taken into consideration. Of course, people can have different views about where oil prices or gas prices or metal prices can be and so on. Uh, and, and even within our company, we have different views about about these questions, but But on almost all of them are in the very low end of the cost curve, which means that even if you you see continued volatility in commodity prices, uh, these companies will be profitable almost at any price. And that's a very big difference compared to other places where uh, the cyclicality of earnings mean that sometimes they go into negative territories even in the worst of the the cycle, the Russian companies do not go negative. And that's a very strong point for them. So I I believe that that we have high quality companies with reliable earnings at very low valuations.
0: And Matthias, one of the things that has dominated uh, markets in early 2022 is inflation expectations and the Concept of the Federal Reserve, particularly in the US, and also all re- pretty much all reserve banks around the world raising interest rates due to inflation. Um, in that type of scenario, where we see meaningful, well, firstly, I'd be interested in your view of inflation, uh, where you see it, and and then also if we do in fact see meaningful amounts of inflation, how your portfolio will react to that. Yeah, yes, thank you for that question. And and
1: I would say I'm in the, in the camp who believes that inflation is something that we're going to have to see for a, for a while, for an extended period of time. We've seen since so basically the mid 80s, inflation coming down and interest rates coming down. And I think we've reached an inflection point where that trend might change. And, you know, having seen very low interest rates in most of the world, not quite as much in in Russia, but in many other places, Uh, people have gotten used to the low interest rates and have mortgage debt that can only be serviced uh, under very low interest rates. It appears almost impossible for the central banks to raise interest rates to a level where you have a meaningful, uh, positive real interest rate. And that probably is needed, would be needed, in order to tame inflation again. So they're not going to do that, which means that inflation probably is here to stay for the foreseeable future. And what does that mean for for financial markets in general? Of course, it's quite bad for for those with high debts. It's quite bad for those with very high multiples. Uh, It's not quite as bad for those who produce real assets, like a lot of Russian companies do. Because they're hedged from this. They're real. Uh, they're, the production is real. And uh, I think some of this, there's an assumption that we would, the commodity prices would go back down to, you know, 10 year averages, a five year average, or something like that. But with, con- with the current inflation, I think that might be not what's going to happen, that you will see higher prices. Uh, higher average prices. that will see still have cyclicality, but you would see higher average prices going forward. And if you if you punch those ones into you know our uh, companies, which we actually don't really do in our base case yet, but if you do, then you come with really dramatic results in terms of what what profits you will see and and what dividends you will get for these companies. So. I would think that Russia is actually a very good place to to uh, be defensive if you believe in uh, in higher interest rates and higher inflation going forward and that you would get a good return even
2: in those circumstances in Russia. And David, it might be on that point and matthias mentioning as well that you know um, the whole drive towards ESG has been fairly dramatic and and as a consequence we've seen, what we believe now for some period of time to be quite chronic underinvestment in, in certain sectors, including in, in oil and gas uh, discoveries and extraction and so on. Um, and so this kind of healthy demand that we're seeing in the market and that will pick up as as the world continues to reopen um, is really not met by supply. And so we also, you know, even in the shorter run, we can see sort of upside risks to to some of these quantity prices as well.
0: Excellent, it's very helpful. I, I think, uh, Matthias, what would be helpful to understand a little bit about the portfolio from the clients are you able to give or, or actually give any uh, sort of specific company examples um, and, and talk about the investment thesis for those companies so people can sort of get their heads around what type of companies you're talking about and some of the examples?
1: Well, yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, you have the big uh, commodity producers that we speak about, uh, you know, Luke and Gazprom and so on, where, you know, peas are, you know, barely above two. And uh, I mean, of course, it's very tricky to see. I mean, many of you probably have heard of the uh, very uh, high gas prices we've seen. In, in europe this year and we're not even counting on them remaining at all but even even if they more or less half is which is our forecast you still have a pe of two and if they don't half then well you can uh, you can figure it out yourselves uh so uh, and, and both gas from and look will have a 20 percent yield you have i mean you're from australia and, and you're quite familiar with with uh, with the metals industries there mm-hmm. and uh and and mining companies, and so you have similar variations on some of those Russian companies also, and Ukrainian companies for that matter, if you wish. Then you have retailers, you know, in the growing env- in the growing economy, uh, where, and that's again without counting on continued inflation, we don't believe that Russian inflation will be so bad as, as it might be in some other places. Uh, because we don't have the debts and the and the and the, um, the need to to keep interest rates low in order to make people uh, you know be able to pay mortgages, but still even with our uh, even with this you have growing retailers that have PEs of five and six and so on, and also double digit dividend yields. So there's a whole array of companies that
2: are attractive. Uh, and that, and, that uh, last point is an important one because. You know, we, we spend our time focused from bottom up, but of course, we're aware of a few top down factors as well. And, and one of those at the moment is, is that the Russian ruble is really very weak. It was weak already prior to some of these geopolitical tensions that are taking place. It was certainly weak prior to what has been a fairly strong oil and gas market, and commodity market in general. Uh, but at this point, we, we really feel it's, it's quite out of, out of place, essentially. Um, So perhaps there'll be some sort of tailwinds for the domestic sector as well. Um, But as Matthias was saying, you know, with respect to to some of the domestic companies and so on, it's quite commonly the case that because people read in the newspaper, you know, incorrect assumptions of what's taking place in and around Russia, that they somehow assume that the economy is is not functioning or that things are not really working as they should be. Uh, When in reality, things are really, as Matthias said, that on the ground, be that in Russia, be that in Ukraine, Uh, no one really (laughs) believes that there's going to be a war. And so life is continuing as normal. So these companies continue to improve their products and services, continue to sell more and higher value, uh, higher up the value chain to their clients. They continue to consolidate the sectors that they're operating into modernize their operations and so on, And, and to just continue to become more intrinsically valuable in the background, essentially, until the market sort of realizes what's taking place.
0: And what is the broader outlook and condition of the Russian economy? Well, I mean, our hypothesis has always been that this, the biggest resources
1: that Russia has is not necessarily the oil and gas, but the people that they, that they that, uh, the Russian people essentially. And they are well educated, they are well able to modernize. We see uh, trends using modern technology. Many Russian companies are at the forefront of this. So we see a higher productivity everywhere and, of course, it's hard for somebody who hasn't visited Russia uh, to to really see it, but we who have, of course, we have a lot of Russian employees, but we who have come there uh, can see a major qualitative difference in the quality of life and in the supply of services and you can see, you know, objective measures such as life expectancy, male life expectancy has increased by 10 years in the last 20 years, Uh, things like uh, infant mortality has gone down by I think about around 70% is now lower than the US. So the society is working much better than it ever was and it continues to improve and I think that is something that people don't appreciate don't understand or realize is that uh, how much more modern and, and effective the whole Russian economy is, and of course there are a lot of good investment opportunities under those circumstances, and it's rare that you get these types of valuations in an in economy and with companies
2: that are actually improving. And the economy itself has been quite conventionally managed, uh, especially in the context of the rest of the world these days. So, uh, you know, um, Russia has has int- introduced some years ago now a, a budget rule. Um, so that the the budget is set to balance this year at 45 us dollars per brent crude barrel of oil uh, with the excess uh, effectively stored up in, in in a different mechanism but in, in in the wealth fund in one way or the other um and you know it, it, they've been working hard to to curtail and, and manage inflation uh, so they've maintained positive real rates throughout and and didn't go into this uh, this sort of negative real rates and very negative real rates that we've seen many many other countries of the world enter um, so, you know, Matthias raised the point a little bit earlier that we don't expect inflation to be as bad in, in Russia as it, it might be in in the other countries. And that's because they they have in that way been really ahead of the curve in managing inflation. We actually believe over the course of maybe this year, or the beginning of next year, that, that Russia will move into more disinflation, um, which is already going to be quite impressive in the context of, of the rest of the world.
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to note that you know, 2001, the GDP was higher than in 19, and you had a budget surplus. Which I, I'm not sure if there are any other countries more or less had a budget surplus in in 21. Uh, so, so yeah, it's it's been orthodoxy managed for sure. But um, and I hope that pays
0: dividends going forward. Well, matthias Tyson, actually, that's been very helpful. Thank you for that update. Uh, before I wrap up, I will give you the opportunity to make any last points or or any other uh, points that you think would be pertinent to our listeners. Uh, but thank you for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to add before I leave? Well, I mean, I'd just uh, like to reiterate the point here that
1: you know it's easy to believe what this sensationalist uh, news that you might might get that that you know some war is impending and and. Uh, uh, things will be very difficult. I think uh, the risks of those ones are very low. I think the the uh, policies uh, applied are are not, I um, say, as uh, as wild as maybe it's been described to be. The, these people are competent in, in in running their their country, and I think in, primarily the companies are very well run. The, uh, there's progress made every day and uh, for this you pay you know p of two and a half or three i think that's that's a discrepancy that's hard to beat at this point
2: and I, I i i hate to add a, a word beyond matthias so maybe i'll encourage him to say one more thing after that but uh you know we we often sit there and we speak about building blocks of return and it's an important point you know when we're, we're paying two and a half, three times earnings for what we believe in many cases are world-class businesses um, that continue to improve, that continue to develop, uh, that continue to be better run and better owned. Uh, that gives us what we believe to be good fundamental downside protection. And, and many people spend their time focusing in our view on on the wrong factors, where where the oil price might be today or tomorrow or, or something along those lines. And in reality, you know, the, the Russian companies are fine under current conditions. And, by generating, you know, sixteen odd percent dividend yields on our our portfolios, uh, you know, thirty five percent plus uh, earnings per share growth, even if we stay at these multiples, uh, that requires quite a significant um, improvement in price and, and and return of capital to investors. So we believe that you know we're paid quite handsomely to wait. Um, But we do think that this sort of period of relative irrationality that surrounds Russia will normalize, at least to some extent, and that at that point, we certainly believe that Russia deserves quite markedly higher multiples than than the country and the companies attract today.
0: Well, terrific. Thank you. Well, if there's uh, nothing further to add, I'll I'll thank you for your time and uh, thanks for joining me at Inside the Rope. Thank Thank you. you. Anytime.
1: Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting CodaCapital.com.